Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you, Father, for the, the moments you've assigned to the church, moments like communion and baptism, moments that remind us, Father, of where our faith began in your sacrifice on the cross and where our faith is leading us into resurrection and new life with you in the kingdom to come. And you've given us these ordinances, Father, because our memories are so short. Our tendency is to overlook the obvious and to forget the things that matter most to you. And these things are commanded, these ceremonies, these ordinances are commanded, Father, for our sake, for the world's opportunity to know the truth, so that we may be witnesses in a profound way. And Lord, thank you for the chance this church has today to celebrate in these two ways. And in between those moments, Father, in between the regular observation of uh, communion and the one time every believer has the chance to go into the water. Apart from those moments, Father, there is the day-to-day. And your word, Father, is that lamp unto our feet and that, that guiding path that takes us from who we are to who you want us to be. And I ask, Father, that as we study this morning, as we try to every week, we put first in our hearts what you have for us on the page. We consider it carefully. We reflect on it, Father, in a in a meaningful way, concerning ourselves with who we are and who we need to be and learning the lessons you intend. That we're always mindful, we're always considerate, Father, of the fact that this word is given to us so that we would do something with it. And that our knowledge is a start, but it's not sufficient. Let us have a heart to do what we are called to do according to what we see in the life of Gideon and and in the message you have for us in his example. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Gideon, you know, there's an old saying about power. I know you've heard it. It goes something like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that saying in some ways is a good reflection on Gideon, on the complicated hero of our story that we've been studying over the last few weeks. I mean, think about this humble guy. He, you know, he was so meek and mild in the beginning that he would describe himself at one point as the least in his family. And then he said his family is the least in the tribe that they were a part of, Manasseh. So clearly he was a guy that saw himself in humble terms and appreciated the reality of who he was and of what little he had to offer the Lord and to the Lord's people. Now, in the way we looked at that, we came to realize that was a bit of a weakness in him and his character. He discounted his opportunity to do a lot of things God would choose to do through him because he only saw his own power as the means to that outcome. He didn't understand God's ability to work through him, right? But then, if you remember, the angel of the Lord appeared to this guy, named him Valiant Warrior, which was ironic at the time. And certainly Gideon did turn out to be valiant in the things that he did. But we also remember he found all that courage only after the Lord had to persuade him in a variety of ways that he could actually go do what he was called to do. Nevertheless, he goes into difficult circumstances and he acts bravely. But then last week, remember we found Gideon heady, drunk a little bit with the power that he possessed, with the victory that he achieved. You might think Gideon would have been quick to cite the Lord as the one who had done all the work, given how he began his walk and all of this. But instead, last week, we see him really taking the mantle of power upon his own and and looking to his own power, threatening his Jewish brothers, ultimately making them pay for their defying of his authority. And though he certainly had every right to hold them accountable, it was his manner it was his words that were so troubling. It was, it was all that we see wrapped up in a man who started to see himself as the one of power rather than as an instrument of God. And when we stopped last week, Gideon had killed the two leaders of Midian 
he had taken their valuable medallions off their necks and off the necks of their camels, you remember. And we said last week those items were very valuable. They were considered reparations for the war effort that Midian had prosecuted against Israel. And so that was justified to be taking reparations was not unreasonable. But I ended last week saying it was a bad omen. It was a sign of things to come with Gideon. And it would ultimately trip him up and the people of Israel. And certainly that's where we'll see things going today. Look at verse 22 in chapter 8. That's where we start, 8.22. Gideon about to create a stumbling block for the people of Israel. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, The Lord shall rule over you. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neckbands that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads any more, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Well, this picks up right where we left off, as you know, from last week, having killed the kings and having taken the medallions. Now you see some of the men of Israel who had accompanied Gideon east of the Jordan. They make a proposal, and they see Gideon here as the clear leader of a nation, an emerging leader at this point. He's led this daring defeat of their main chief rival, their chief Hero, uh, uh, enemy, and so he's the hero. Here you have the hero of the moment, and they're ready to unite around him and establish a dynasty in his name around Gideon. In verse 22, they say, "Rule over us," and then they add, "Not only you, Gideon, but your sons and your sons' sons." This reference to Gideon's sons is the implication of dynasty. That, in other words, they're suggesting they prop up a monarchy beginning with King Gideon, and then as all monarchies typically go then that dynasty of leaders would rule from generation to generation in perpetuity. This is the first time in all the history of the nation of Israel that any man has been offered the opportunity to become king over Israel. And that's a sentiment that's going to grow within the people of Israel from this time forward. As they get farther from the Lord in their hearts, they're going to seek more and more for a human leader instead of for the Lord as their leader. Notice in Verse 24, we're told they are Ishmaelites. There's a couple of ways to look at this verse. It says that they took the earrings from their spoil, and that spoil would have been what they captured from the warriors that they were fighting against. It could be that the Ishmaelites is not a reference to these men, but to the previous owners of the spoil. Or it could be a reference, and most interpreters believe it is a reference to these particular men who are trying to crown Gideon. And yet in verse 22, we're told they are of Israel. So how can they both be of Israel and Ishmaelites? Well, the answer would be that they are Jews, but probably of the tribes of Gad or Reuben, which were on the eastern side of the Jordan. 
And therefore, living east of the Jordan for some time as nomads in that region, they may have begun to associate themselves with the Midianites more so than with their own people on the western side of Jordan. And so they may have come to call or consider themselves to be Ishmaelites because that term was also a general reference to nomadic peoples living east of the Jordan. It had become sort of a generic way, like we say Americans to refer to the United States, forgetting, of course, that there are Canadians and Mexicans that are also, quote, Americans, North Americans, right? We've made that term synonymous with one people group. In a similar way, Ishmaelites have become just a general term for people who wandered east of the Jordan. So that's another way in which we could say these people were the Ishmaelites. In any case, they have earrings, whether for their own or from what they took from the ones they defeated. That represents a sizable amount of wealth. And now that those kings and those people have been defeated and that wealth has fallen into the hands of the Jews, it is now the opportunity for Gideon to take a bit of spoil for himself, having taken on and defeated the Midian kings. Now, these men who are around Gideon, let's assume for the moment that they are the members of Gad and Reuben, living east of the Jordan, who accompanied the raids against the Midianites once Gideon went across the water. And they've been living a little close to the Midianites. They've been associating with them, maybe even identifying with them a little bit. Now you have Gideon ride into town and defeat the most powerful force in your land. You wonder for a moment if maybe some of these Israelites had wondered whether Gideon saw them as rivals, as enemies, as associated with Midian, or whether he perceived them as his brothers. Maybe there's a little worry about where their allegiance is. So they quickly rally around him and they say, good job, Gideon. We're glad you beat these Midianites we've been hanging out with for so long. Uh, You want to be our king since we don't have any kings anymore? Since you killed the other two? Maybe you should be our king. It's an attempt to appease him, it would seem. They're bargaining to rejoin Israel under Gideon's authority. Now, to his credit, what does Gideon say? He says, no, I'm not going to be your king. He says, the Lord is the one who should be your king. He's the one who is ruling right now. And I am not interested in trying to usurp his role. That's a good answer. And we certainly like to see him say these things. It would suggest he's not interested in a power trip. And if Gideon had stopped at this point, well, then he would have done very well. And we would all be congratulating him for his strength of character. But instead, he doesn't stop. He takes an additional step. He asks them for payment. In other words, He won't accept the position of king, but he's willing to consider accepting the riches that accompany such a position. And so he wants all of this wealth. He asked them each to give an earring, which was, again, part of the spoil of the war. And these men are only too ready to do that because at this point they're happy to do anything they can to win Gideon's favor. They're worried about what Gideon would do to them after he killed the kings, right? So they give him an earring each. And when it's all added up, the the weight here is expressed in shekels. If we do the conversion, you end up with 75 pounds of gold, which is equivalent to about $1.4 million in today's value of gold. You take the additional pieces that he got from the kings. You notice it, it, it said that does not count the ornaments that he received from the kings. We're talking about large medallions that they would have worn. Plus, they would have put an even larger one around the neck of their camel. I mean, how much can a camel hold around his neck? Quite a bit. We're not talking about a little thing like this, right? You wouldn't even see it on a camel. Let's estimate conservatively another 20 to 30 pounds of precious metal out of those medallions. You're talking somewhere upward of 100 pounds of gold, somewhere near $2 million worth of value that he just gets as his payment like that. Not bad for a day's work. 
when you think about it. Because that's about how long this war lasted, from one night into the next day. Now, taking the wealth in and of itself, not a problem, biblically speaking. In fact, Gideon does not even appear to be a person who is particularly driven by wealth, at least not in the way some men could be seen to be, right? It's not so much that he has wealth, and it's not even so much that he wanted to be paid. The problem is what his interest in wealth has to say about his heart. You remember Jesus' words in Matthew 6:24 when he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, Jesus says. Gideon is trying to serve two masters here, himself and God. On the one hand, he refuses to be made a king because he says, well, God alone rules and I'm not going to take that job. But on the other hand, he believes he is due reward for having defeated the kings. But wait a minute, whom defeated who? Did Gideon defeat any of these guys or was it the Lord who won this battle? You see, indirectly, his request for enumeration reflects an attitude about what he is deserving in this versus what God is deserving. And if you want an example of the better way he could have handled this situation, I want you to consider an example of Abraham who responded very differently under very similar circumstances. You remember when Abraham took a small force of about 318 people from his household, we're told, and in Genesis 14, he goes with those 318 to defeat the kings of the north who had come in to ravage the the land and to defeat the cities that were in rebellion. And particularly, those kings of the north took the people of Sodom, including his nephew Lot, and rode away with all the people, remember? So here's Gideon with 300. Here's Abraham with 318, real similar. And then after Abraham goes into battle with 318 against a superior force and wins because of God's providence, here's what Abraham says when he is offered payment for his victory. Genesis 14:21. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, "Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself." Now, to show you how similar this is, what the king just said is, "Abraham, I will remain king of the people, but you can have all the war booty." Similar to Gideon, right? Gideon said, "I don't want to be king, but I want the war booty." All right? Abraham has exactly the same opportunity. Verse 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, "I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear, you would say, I have made Abraham rich. Now, friends, that is the response of a man serving God alone and not himself. And he goes out of his way in verse 22 to describe the Lord as the possessor of heaven and earth, which is a way of saying everything that I could gain from you, God already owns. And if he desires I have it, he'll give it to me. I don't need you to make me rich. But now what did Gideon do? Well, his heart, I would argue, is divided. And as proof, I would offer that he wasn't willing to serve God in consideration for what God would do. He names his own price, so to speak, from those around him. In verse 27, Gideon does this. Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah, And all Israel played harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. In verse 27, we're told Gideon takes it. Notice the pronoun. What is it referred to? Well, it has to, by rules of grammar, refer to everything he just received. All the gold that he obtained. 
and he made an ephod from a hundred pounds of gold. Now, an ephod is that long sleeveless robe that the high priest would wear. And that robe was woven from fine linen and it was only worn by the high priest. If you remember, the robe then was part of the overall outfit. On top of the ephod, the priest had this breastplate with the jewels on it and it was hung over the shoulders and so on. That garment was the full dress plus the hat, the full dress of the high priest. But the main garment, the main thing you saw was this elaborately woven sleeveless robe. That's the ephod. Now Gideon makes one of those but he uses a hundred pounds of gold to make that kind of an outfit. And if you think about how much thread, how much weaving you can do if you've beaten gold down to the point where it's a fine thread, how far does a hundred pounds go? This is an incredibly large, ornate, heavy, fancy robe. Far beyond what God required. This is his own homegrown design, apparently, because it's not being done according to what the law required. Never mind the fact that the law wouldn't have allowed him to make his own anyway. So... Then he takes this incredibly ornate garment and he displays it, we're told, in his hometown, in Ophrah. And we're not sure how he displayed it, but since it's a garment, some have come to suppose that Gideon may have actually worn it from time to time in Ophrah, sort of paraded around in it, etc. And in that sense, if he was doing anything of that sort, he would have been suggesting that he was an alternate to the priesthood in Shiloh. He had an alternative seat of worship to compete with the tabernacle. That would be potentially the implication. I mean, friends, another way to ask the question is, why do you make an ephod except for the purpose of using it the way ephods are supposed to be used? It wouldn't serve any other purpose. You might as well just make a big statue to yourself. Clearly, he didn't want to spend the money, but he had an even worse idea. Remember, the priest of Israel, the high priest of Israel, under the law, was the intercessor for God's people through the sacrificial system that they had in the law. But now you see Gideon taking the role upon himself, or so it would seem, and here's the irony. He didn't want to be king, but he aspires to an equally impressive role as priest, one he could not qualify for. Now, where would you go if you were a Jew? You could either go to Shiloh to this humble-looking, rather ugly, tent-like building, or you could travel a different direction, go to another town, Ophrah, see the hero of the war effort, the judge of Israel, and that incredible robe he built that you just got to see this to believe it. And you draw people from the place God had prescribed for worship to a false place that you've set up for yourself. Gideon had set up for himself. He's guilty of leading the people back into idolatry. How ironic. The guy who was called by God to lead them out is the guy that stumbles them back in. The ephod has become an idol to the people of Israel, we're told, and moreover, to Gideon himself and to Gideon's household. It becomes a relic that ensures Israel is still involved in false worship. And though Gideon continues as a judge in the land all the way to his death, he is a severely compromised leader. Gideon becomes only the second Jew in all Israel's short history to encourage people into worship of an idol. The other who led Israel into idol worship? Aaron. Aaron in the desert when he made the golden calf. Twice gold has been at the center of this false worship. Both times you put an object in front of the people in place of their reliance on God's word. Superstition replaces a relationship with the Lord. 
And you can clearly see now this new cycle of sin and judges is starting. Remember the cycle we've talked about now here about sin, leading them into a fall, leading them into some period of punishment. Then God restores them. Well, we're coming out the backside of that now, the restoration side of that. And even before we're done, they're already stumbling into the next cycle. They're already involved in idol worship. Gideon's return to idol worship reflects not only the sin cycle of the nation, but it's also a little sin cycle of his own family. Where did his walk with the Lord start in this story? What was the first thing he did after he got the call from the angel of the Lord that he was supposed to go out and do the work that God called him to do? He said he had to go to my father's home and destroy their personal altar to Baal. Remember that? He had to tear down his father's Baal altar. Now he has set up a new altar, a new false god altar, it's not to a foreign god, mind you. It's supposedly to Yahweh. It's, it's not directing them to Baal, thankfully. But the people of Israel are so spiritually weak, they're so easily drawn into worshiping idols, into physical representations and the like, that they're now violating the second commandment of the law, where before they had been violating the first commandment of the law. But it's a meaningless difference in the big scheme of things. He's repeating the sins of his past. This all goes in keeping with what we've been saying about Gideon from the beginning. His own testimony, the story that we have in Scripture, is given to us so that we'd understand both sides of this man, the full aspect of who he was, both what he did in faith, but also the things he did which are not in keeping with faith, which proved to be a stumbling block for the people of Israel. And in our attempts to flesh him out in the story, we've seen that he is a servant of God, yes, but he is a deeply flawed one as well. His spiritual weakness is never very far from the surface in this story. You can see it in almost every decision he makes. In many ways, he's sort of a classic study of the danger of spiritual weakness and spiritual immaturity in any child of God. He is a saint. He is saved by faith. But he's handicapped because he has this lack of familiarity with God's word. And he has an inability to rely on God's power. He keeps mixing it up. One moment he's with God, the next minute he's with himself. He'll hesitate to move forward when he hears the word of the Lord. And then when he does move forward, well, then he'll find success, of course. And then he lets it go to his head and he forgets how he got there in the first place. And this is a very classic storyline. Unfortunately, too many people we could name, maybe some we know, have followed that exact same path. Weak in the beginning, heady at the end, God nowhere to be found except in brief moments. When you see people doing these things, if it's in yourself to see it or if it's in someone else around you, maybe even someone you look up to as a spiritual leader in your life. But if you see these behaviors where they hesitate to move on the word of God or where they're easily distracted by their own success, think of those behaviors as canaries in a coal mine. Those are the first indications that there is trouble in their spiritual walk. Those are the early signs that that person may not be as spiritually mature as you think they are. Or, if you're looking at yourself, as you think you are. Everyone will hesitate to follow the Lord from time to time. That's normal. But if you live in a perpetual state of hesitation or doubt in God or in his word or in his power to do as he says, well, then you're in need of greater spiritual maturity. That much is easy to see. Likewise, everyone sins from time to time, right? But if you stray from godliness into fleshly living in a consistent manner or in dramatic ways, then friends, your spiritual allegiance is divided. You are trying to serve two masters and one is winning and not the right one. You cannot serve two masters. And that's true regardless of what that other master may be in your life. You've all, as a, as a matter of speaking to Christians, you've all been saved by God's grace. So that means, friends, you're to serve him alone. 
He's a jealous God. And sometimes God exposes those weaknesses in our allegiance, so to speak, in, in reflecting how we are too prone to certain sins or to going certain directions. He exposes them so that he can scrape them off. You know, once they come to the surface, that's the best time for you, God, and, and others in your life to look at them together with you and say, not a good thing, let's deal with it. But it requires we recognize that need and that we pursue sanctification and do what Scripture demands. That's what Gideon is really an example of. He's an example of someone who God can do amazing things with despite him, and yet he never quite gets the picture in his own life. Now, despite his apostasy, the Lord remains faithful. We hear that here at the end. He frees Israel. And in verse 28, we're told that he has delivered Israel from an enemy of any kind for 40 years. In verse 28, they are free from the oppression of the Midianites. And it says here, interesting phrase, they don't have to lift their heads anymore. Lifting your head refers to the way someone who is fearful will constantly watch the horizon for an attacker. It's this sense of always being under attack. But these people no longer have that fear. For 40 years, they never even worry about what's coming over the horizon. Friends, this is the final mention of a period of peace in the book of Judges. And we're not even halfway through it. As the cycle of judges continues, the apostasy continues to get worse, the repentance becomes less, the judges themselves become more ungodly, and therefore the opportunities for peace in the land continues to go down over time. That in itself, I think, is a useful picture for what we can experience individually. If our cycle, you know, the the idea that repentance should be a turning from something and a never to return to it, that's the ideal form of repentance. That's what repentance expects. But in our own experience as Christians, I'm sure you'll agree with me that we don't often see that happen. We do sometimes, but more often we tend to play with sin for a while before we finally do the true repentant act of leaving it forever whatever that is in our life, or whatever those things might be. But in that meantime, when we're in that cycle of sort of returning to it, think of Gideon and what his life was like. Think of all of Judges in that respect. If we play with it too long, what we're betting on is that we'll always have the strength of character to fully turn and fully repent. And our, and our fallbacks, our, our sliding is just a temporary thing, but we're really moving this way. I like to describe it as a wheel. Think of a wheel sort of turning in one direction, the bad direction, moving us further and further from God and into our flesh. And we think that, oh, we can just stop that wheel and turn it the other way whenever we feel like it. The cycle of judges proves otherwise. If we keep rolling in one direction, we may lose the ability. God may not permit us the blessing, the grace to make that turn. What you see in judges is each new judge is less effective at helping Israel out of their trouble than the prior one was. And as a result, each new judge is more compromised themselves. And Gideon becomes an important turning moment in the story where for the first time we see a judge who really doesn't act the part very well and leaves things as worse, as bad as he found them in many ways. There's one more degree of irony here as we leave his story. At the start, you remember where the people of Israel were? Hiding in caves? Worried that they'd be attacked at any time. In fact, Gideon himself was so fearful. Where was he? He was in a wine press trying to thresh grain in in a place down low where he wouldn't be seen. I mean, everybody's cowering in fear, right? Now, we're told they're so secure they don't even have to lift their heads up. Totally without fear. And yet they're still engaged in idolatry, albeit just different than the form it was before. 
The irony is that even though they feel better, even though God has freed them in a physical sense from what they were experiencing on earth, spiritually, there hasn't been much improvement. That's the tendency we all have, is to see our circumstances on earth as the only measure of whether we're pleasing God or not, forgetting that that is not a measure in any way. There are just as many happy, ungodly people on earth as there are unhappy Christians. Because what we experience in life is, is not necessarily connected to our spiritual state. It's our perception of it. Paul says he can be content in all circumstances. Why? Because he knew where he stood with Christ. His earthly circumstances weren't a measure of anything. Now, his immaturity has consequences for himself, but also for others, and some are immediate. Look in verse 29. Then Drubal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now, Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah, of the Abyssalites. Then it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berith their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. All right, well, the cycle of of Gideon's judgeship is now an end, and yet that judgeship, Gideon's judgeship, has sown the very seeds that start the next cycle of sin in Israel. Gideon, we know, was powerful because of what he gained from his war booty and, and probably from other largesse that came his way. He's wealthy, and you can see that reflected in the fact that he has many wives, many concubines, and those additional sexual relationships, they were all sinful. They were all evidence of a divided heart. He fathers many offspring, including 70 sons as a result. He has multiple households. He has a stable of concubines in Shechem. And friends, Shechem was a Canaanite city at this time in history. So this is a Canaanite concubine, a Canaanite slave wife. He declined to be king, but he chose to live like one anyway. In fact, in many ways, his story parallels that of Solomon, at least in these details. For all intents and purposes, you would be hard-pressed to make a distinction between Gideon and Solomon in this case, in terms of what it looks like to be king. Both men had gold, wealth, taken from the people. Both displayed their wealth in ostentatious ways. Both led Israel into idolatry. Both enjoyed the fruits of power, including many wives and slave wives. Both men tried to pass ruling power on to their son. In fact, this name Abimelech that he gives to the son from the woman from Shechem. Abimelech means, my father is king. He named his son, my father is king. In virtually every way possible, Gideon became the king that he claimed not to be. And all of this starts to weigh on him the way it did Solomon. Friends, sin has consequences, and you can see the consequences of Gideon's poor choices now and in the next chapter. We're introduced, in fact, to the end here, at the end of this chapter, we're introduced to the next judge in the timeline. You just don't know it yet. That is Abimelech, Gideon's son by that slave woman. And because she's a Canaanite, the product of this sinful relationship turns out to be a man, a judge, who will bring treachery, war, and bloodshed to Israel. This guy is a wreck. And when you watch what he does in the next chapter, when we come back to this story, you're going to be shocked that anyone of this sort could even be called the judge of Israel. His, his reign, Gideon's reign, ends in peace, but it leads to a real period of distress for the nation 
of Israel. Meanwhile, the story of Gideon himself ends with his death and his rapid burial and then Israel's return to sin. They begin worshiping Baal again. You notice specifically, they do not remember that it was the Lord who delivered them from their enemies. I wonder why it would be that the people of Israel wouldn't remember that God did all the winning when the guy that was in the battle kept pointing to himself. They followed Gideon's example. They just took it a step further. Gideon said, hey, I'm the big guy on campus now. Here's my ephod. What do you think? He dies. They said, well, let's just go right back to Baal. We're halfway there anyway. And that transition shouldn't surprise us at all because of this cycle we talked about, right? Friends, anytime you become comfortable with a physical manifestation of God, like that ephod, then true idolatry is just right around the corner. You're already in the neighborhood. Gideon's behavior can become something we're more comfortable with in our own walk than we even realize sometimes. You and I can become a victim of sorts to a type of thinking that's in the church, at least on the periphery of the church. It moves us to a man-centered view of our relationship with God. It leads us into a walk that is more superstition than based on relationship and truth in Scripture. For example, things like crosses, crosses they cling to literally, physically when they're praying and and the like, or paintings of the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus on our walls that, that some people look at and think of reverently or pause and pray at when they pass by it sometimes. Or in churches, they have sometimes these ornate, unread Bibles that are just seated on cloth-covered tables. No one ever turns a page on them or does anything with them, but they're just up there all the time. Bibles are supposed to be read, not used as an icon. But you see that in churches. Or people teach others in the faith to recite these obscure, hidden prayers from some corner of the Old Testament, and we tell you that if you say that one little prayer, magical things will happen for you. Or we can only sing certain hymns, or just read out of the King James Version, please, nothing else. We find ways to iconify our relationship with Christ so that these things that we cling to become the point of our reference for faith. Rather than remembering, Jesus said to the woman at the well, you will not worship here nor in Jerusalem, but we will worship in spirit and in truth. Two things you can't see or touch. That's the way we're supposed to relate to our Lord. You'd be surprised how quickly you can begin to walk down that path when you begin to substitute physical objects for a faith that relies on the word of God alone and the spirit in your heart. That's true following of Christ. And that takes you out of the neighborhood of idolatry entirely. Don't let anybody else drag you back in with icons. We don't need them. Speaking of which, let's go to the Lord and and prepare to meet him in the communion meal. Not an icon, not a substitution for Christ, but a, a picture of what he did in his body on the cross. Thank you, Father, for the stern reminder from, from Gideon's life that... Uh, Even those who know you in faith can stumble. And that as we choose to do things we shouldn't, as we consider the temptations of this world and and substitute allegiance to you alone in our hearts and and choose some of these other things, Father, we may may become an idol-worshipping example that we never expected to be. And Lord, we know that you remain faithful. We are so thankful that these mistakes will not separate us from you, from the love that you have shown us in Christ. But nor, Father, can that become an excuse to be licentious, to to make a license to sin out of what you have done for us. So I pray, Father, that uh, Gideon's example to us would be one that we would always remember. A man who was weak and uh, meek in the beginning and understood his strength was limited. But because of your strength in him, Father, he began to see himself in, in too great a way. 
And though you used him for mighty things, he returned the favor, Father, by leading your people into idol worship. I pray, Father, none of us would have a testimony like that. We would remain humble, but available. We would serve you in your power, but never seek to take your glory. Let us be that kind of people, Father. And let us remember these things as we take a a moment in communion to remember the work your son did on the cross, to understand where all of this started, how it all is made available to us in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.